the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree of the Back podcast, the show brought to you by BackpageFootball.com, where we try to make sense of the topsy-turvy Premier League and football that matters most to us. I'm joined, as always, by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Evening, lads. How are things? Evening. How's it going? So if you're like me and the latter half of 2020 has been counted by international windows, you'll be looking forward to another trio of Ireland games for Stephen Kenny, starting with England. On Thursday night, we'll be taking a look at Ireland's squad for the next couple of weeks I'm wondering if we can finally find a goal or two and hopefully a couple of results as well. We'll also be getting the English perspective on things and discussing their enviable squad options and lofty expectations ahead of Euro 2021 with Dan Kilpatrick of the London Evening Standard. So stay tuned for that a little bit later on. But first, on to the Premier League. And this weekend, Phil, we had um, City and Liverpool, kind of a fixture now that has turned into probably the biggest game in English football at the moment. Um, And real title-deciding influences to it, despite it being so early into the season, kind of had that feel going into it. What did you make, first of all, of um, of Klopp's kind of grenade picking all four attackers and, and how Liverpool shaped up early on? Yeah, it was um, It was definitely a surprise to see him go with all four. Um, I suppose you've kind of gotten used to Klopp in away games, especially people like Everton and United, kind of taking the more conservative route and being happy enough to not lose the game, uh, which is something you don't always associate with Klopp, but it's something he's definitely shown in a, in a trend uh, for Liverpool's big away games. And Liverpool don't have a great record at the Etihad under Klopp. Um, so it was definitely encouraging from my point of view and bold from his point of view to see him go for it. His hand was forced a small bit, I think, just because he probably only had those two fit midfielders, really. Kaita probably didn't have the, ga- the, mm. the games in his legs to, to start at the Etihad. And uh, then you're probably looking at someone like Shakiri or Curtis Jones, which is arguably a bigger uh, roll of the dice than, than, than what he went with. Uh, and he did have the perfect two midfielders to play that two in Henderson and Manialdon being so active and, and, and so eager to work. Um, but yeah, I, I thought like it was a really bold selection. I thought it looked like it was paying off early. Liverpool had a really, really hectic start in a good way. They were all over City. Salah and Firmino did a good job on, on Rodri and Gundogan and um, Mane and Jota did a good job. At, at closing the wide lanes the City like to use um, obviously things tired out a little bit uh, at the end of well the kind of second half of either half if that makes sense um, things really petered out in, in in the last quarter of the game but um, I think he, he was justified in, in what he did uh, in that like it didn't backfire I thought that why he picked it borne, it, borne itself out um, but probably a draw in the end was was fair enough given mm. how City picked up in the ter- in the second and fourth quarters, I felt, um, especially kind of early on in the game, it seemed to be working really well, and they were getting into attacking positions, and it kind of got into scenarios where they didn't really know what to do, and there was kind of a little bit of confusion. I think Jota looked a little bit uncomfortable in attacking situations uh, coming from the right hand side, 
whereas so far we've kind of seen him on the left or, or through the middle. Um, and then ultimately the kind of that shape was around doing then when, when City found that, that equaliser with, first of all, Manny getting dragged um, up into the middle of the field and Wijnaldum then leaving acres of space for, for that ball to be found from De Bruyne. Yeah, I agree with both of those points. Firstly, in the attack, they definitely looked a little uncertain of themselves compared to normal. They created some good chances, or at least chances to create chances, if that makes sense, on the transition. But the kind of last ball or the ball before the last ball was a bit lacking sometimes. And I think that mm-hmm. was contributed to people maybe being in situations that they weren't entirely used to being in. And I definitely agree for the City goal as well. Mane kind of triggered a press that he'd normally trigger when he was used to playing in the 4 3 3. Um, didn't really get anywhere near the ball, which meant when Yaldam had to cover across from, and then Mane didn't return the favour, and all of a sudden De Bruyne was in space um, on the edge of the box, and the goal happened from there. So I think there was definitely elements of Liverpool not getting their shape bang on. There was also elements of the shape being a little chaotic deliberately, like initially set up quite well to frustrate City, but if they got past the initial sort of press, it was a little bit chaotic, a little bit scrambly. Todd Henderson scrambled quite well, um, them as well until they didn't and that's that's the kind of high wire act uh, in these in these Liverpool City games uh, that that both sides are trying to play their game and that, that both sides are trying to impose themselves but they're also very aware that the other side is equally capable of hurting them as they are of, of hurting the op- of the opponents so I think the, the high wire act came apart a little bit for that goal but it, I think Klopp probably thought that a risk were taken do you see anything in, in City's performance, um, Enda? Um, I thought they started to come into it really well when, like Phil said, Liverpool kind of seemed to do well in in start, you know styles of play where it's a little bit uh, crazy. There's, you know, feel is stretched and things are a bit manic. But when legs started to get tired, tired um, City seemed to get a lot more control in the game. Yeah, I think City deserve probably a, a bit more credit uh, in terms of how patient they were. You know, they dealt with the Liverpool onslaught, you know, early on. I thought Liverpool's first 15, 20 minutes was absolutely perfect. So for City just to hang on and stay in the game, um, I thought Ruben Diaz in particular really kind of mm. held them together. Oh, yeah. I think that midfield of Rodri and Gudnagan is, you know, still a disaster waiting to happen. I just don't think it's solid enough for somebody like De Bruyne. Um, you know, considering the positions he takes up mainly on the right now um, in attacking play, it leaves him really exposed. And I think he, he really needs somebody to just sit beside him. Gundogan, uh, you know, in the last couple of years has really struggled, I felt. Um, he doesn't give them enough balance in attack or defence. So, uh, again, I was quite disappointed um, that Foden didn't start. And even only, only to give him four minutes at the end would still be my biggest criticism uh, of them for the day. Um, and, and also... They've stopped kind of building around Bernardo Silva, which which I find quite odd. I thought he was probably Pep's most uh, impressive signing a couple of years ago. And you think after losing David Silva in particular that they had basically a clone right there uh, in order to bring in. But he seems, seems to be kind of drifting out a bit of uh, Pep's first team plans, um, which is surprising to me. But we discussed a few weeks ago that City have improved defensively. And I think we saw that again. I know Walker was was at fault. Um I wouldn't go as far as calling him an idiot <laughs> like Roy Keane did, but you know it's one of those things. But you know Walker and Cancelo as the fullbacks are looking really solid now for City, um, and Diaz has settled in really well. Um, you know when you look at defenders coming from Portugal, the one you think of obviously is Mangala, uh, who had a disastrous time in the league, mm. and Lindelof has struggled with the physicality. Mm. Um, so in fairness to Diaz, he has settled in really, really well. Um, 
so I think actually City are, are in all right shape. Um, you know, once Aguero comes back and, you know, they have to manage Fernandinho very well, I think he'll he'll be the sitting midfielder alongside Rodri as well. So that'll give them a lot more balance. Um, it, Pep's subs, as I said earlier, they still kind of confuse me a little bit. Um, he's not quite at Louis van Gaal level yet where he brings on fullbacks for no reason, but just some of them just seem to be, you know, the timing of using Foden, you look at when they were 1-0 down to West Ham, he brought him on a half time to change the game and that's exactly what he did. And I felt yesterday he had Liverpool on the ropes a bit, um, especially in that second half. And I think he kind of let, let them away with it a little bit. But um, no, overall, I mean, I thought the first half from both teams was actually fantastic. You know, it was a, a mile away from what we saw from United or Spurs or Arsenal mm. um, or even Chelsea, you know, who were pretty good at the weekend as well. But you know, the intensity that these two teams play at, considering how early it is in the season with no preseason, it was not too surprising that they ran out of steam a little bit in the end. But, um, you know, I think City are starting to look a lot more solid and balanced, um, you know, uh, and to get Jesus back as well is is a big deal for them because they really do need a number nine. Um, And it was a fantastic goal as well, by the way. I don't know if he meant it, but um, I'll take it. Um, And I I think he did. Yeah, I think like I think so. To anticipate the way he did that, that's where the ball would be for like his outside his foot to finish. Um, But there were a few doubters online, as there always will be. But um, (laughs) yeah, I think uh, I'm actually impressed with their kind of solidity that we haven't really seen from them in the last couple of seasons, you know, it's all been very gung-ho um, and to recover from the Leicester match, you know, um, like they have done where they just looked too far open um, was very impressive. So, you know, I think credit goes to both sides. It was a, a great sort of first hour in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they got too much criticism in, at the end for petering out a bit um, at this early in the season. Yeah. Just to follow on quickly on your point about the defence, um, I actually thought, Joao Cancelo was excellent um, coming, coming up against Mo Salah. Um, definitely the best I've seen him play for City so far. And I think, you know, a lot a lot was made of Laporte's inter, injury last year. Um, but for years now, like he hasn't, not since company have City had a back two that you could rely on. But now that Ruben Diaz has come in, he's looked excellent so far the last couple of weeks. Um, if they can keep Laporte fit alongside him, um, it's going to go a huge way to, to fixing those defensive problems that they've had for so long. Um, mentioned there the subs. Um, Phil Foden didn't even come on in the end. Um, I think he was he was kitted out to come on, but um, time kind of got away from City and he never came on. And that's kind of popped up this conversation. Um, Klopp and Pep were talking about it in, on the sideline and in their press conferences afterwards about these five substitutions. Um, now, Liverpool only used two subs and one was enforced with um, Alexander-Arnold going off um, with an injury. James Miller came on. City only used one sub and the theory is because they're not using all their subs is they're afraid someone else might get injured and that would mean they might have to play three or four minutes with ten men um, and with such a huge game with so much at stake you can kind of understand that Phil um, I mean the team both teams kind of looked absolutely exhausted by the end of it um, they're the only the Premier League is the only league in Europe now without the, the five or the only major league in Europe without the, the five substitutions um, and it was voted down by the Premier League clubs like do you think do you think that argument stands that the likes of City and Liverpool with the deep squads that they have, that they have an unfair advantage versus someone like Burnley who might necessarily have four or five guys to, to bring on and, and make a, a huge difference. 
like do you buy that debate or should welfare uh, player welfare come first and foremost no matter whether you're 20 or first in the league I think the player welfare argument is very well made. I think it's very short-sighted and very self-interested for um, kind of executive teams and management teams of Burnley and Newcastle and people like that to be against it. I also think it's quite short-sighted in that Burnley might have 14 players they can rely on to start a Premier League game. Liverpool have a lot more. So while Liverpool might not be able to make the changes they want during the game, if Alexander-Arnold does get injured, James Milner is ready to play the next game. Whereas if... Dwight McNeil gets injured for Burnley, and um, they their their depth isn't such that they can't they can't uh, afford a six or seven week injury to to Dwight McNeil as well as Liverpool or City might be able to, to to their best player. So I think that in they're they're kind of cutting off their nose despite their face. I think it's being very short sighted in in thinking that they're getting one over on the bigger teams by stopping them making changes in game when and they haven't had the exposure to it yet that the European teams have or that the teams in Europe have rather. Um, they're gonna the schedule's about to pick up for the the other fourteen teams in the league who aren't in Europe, and they're gonna very quickly start to experience the same sort of things that the European sides have in the kind of increase in soft muscle injuries, soft tissue injuries. So I think they're gonna get a rude awakening pretty quickly about why the European teams want to make this change. And listen, I get it. Is it fair that Liverpool can call on five subs that would probably all start for Burnley or Palace? Not really. But is it then fair that the Palace lose Will Saha for eight weeks and they're playing Christian Benteke instead? That doesn't really work for them either. So I don't really get why they've done it. I think it's very short-sighted. I think it's small-minded. I don't think it's in the players' best interest. I also don't think it's actually in the club's best interest. And I think they're just not quite seeing that. Um, so I, it might it might well change. I mean, if we see this spate mm. of injuries now leading up to Christmas. It's because, not too late either, I don't think. No, by all accounts, I think they can change their mind. And um, like Klopp had that good quote that um, September's been like December, October's been like December, November's been like December, and December will be like December. Uh, and I think the the smaller clubs are gonna gonna start to feel that pinch a bit. So we might see it roll back eventually. Yeah, I think it's been a disaster for them not to <clears throat> enforce it. To be honest, as you said, it's the only only league in Europe not to. And we saw post lockdown, even when we did have five subs, uh, you know, so many teams were out on their feet by the end. Um, and I think it's only going to get worse and worse. I mean, looking at the schedule ahead for the next kind of five to six weeks, it's absolutely insane for most teams. Um, so it's going to be a huge problem for every club. Um, as the United fan, I'm not too disappointed if they introduce five subs because we might see Van de Beek actually get some game time mm-hmm. <laughs> at some point. Um, but, you know, I think the point Phil made is more important that no matter what team you are, player welfare is most important. And, you know, for them to be able to preserve, you know, whether it's, Dwight McNeil, Zaha, whatever team you are, you know, Sheffield United, um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the more options you have to rest players um, or take them off after an hour, um, the better it is for you and your team. So, like, this was a, a choice that was made by the majority of clubs, and I still don't understand why. Um, and I think like, I, I w- I'd be surprised if it wasn't changed in the next couple of weeks when it's reviewed again. In the... Um if home form was discounted, United would be in the top four right now with a game in hand. So I'm not sure if that's any consolation to you. But um, I'll take what I can get. What? I, I will take <laughs> what's, what's the mindset at United where they've had a couple of bad results at home, especially in that they can go into Goodison and play a really decent Everton side who, albeit were without Richarlison, 
um, and that seems to have had a, a fairly big difference to them. But what's what's the mindset of United that they can go to Everton and, and play well and get the result? Yeah, we actually saw this back in David Moyes' days. Uh, a lot of people forget that United had one of the best away records in the league under David Moyes when he was sacked. You look at his worst results, West Brom, Everton, Newcastle, Liverpool, Man City. That was all at Old Trafford. His away record was actually quite solid. Um, and we're seeing that again. I think it's a mixture of a few things. They they lack confidence and authority as a group, which always costs you at home. Um, and then I think there is an element of teams not really expecting them to play well against them when they're away from home, just because they've seen how poor they are at Old Trafford. And then that leads them kind of playing into their hands. If you look at Newcastle and again at Everton at the weekend, um, they really set off them a lot. Whereas, as we saw against Arsenal, United need to play against the high press in order to be put under pressure. Those midfielders are receiving the ball right on top of the centre-backs. If you high, if you press against them high, there's, there's just no way out for United. Um, whereas Everton just gave them so much space in midfield. I mean, you know, Fernandes has been quite flaky at the start of this season, but if you give him that much space to run a game, I mean, he he's just not going to let you down, you know? So I thought Everton had a really, really poor day. Um when I looked at their lineup and you saw Bernard um, in particular, I know he scored the goal, but he's somebody who I felt has really struggled at Everton. Yeah. Um, their lineup mm. didn't fill me with too much hope that they'd actually do something against United, even though conditions were perfect for them to to, to play well against them. Hammers, I thought, had probably one of his most ineffective games as well for Everton. And then the way they played against United, particularly in the second half, you know, Maguire will just clean up all day long uh, with that amount of crosses. Um, and he probably had one of his best games of the season. But I just think United are just more comfortable and conf- confident in themselves in what they're trying to do away from home, which is, you know, not feel the pressure of having to play out from the back all the time or have 60 to 70 percent of the possession. Um, I, it actually gives them more control of a game when they have less of the ball. And we saw that against Aubrey Leipzig, actually. That was more like an away match in terms of I think they had about mid 40 percent possession in that first half. But they're actually quite comfortable in soaking it up. And then eventually they're just able to hit them uh, in the second half. Whereas that Arsenal game, they're under so much pressure right from the start with that high press. And if you look, this goes back probably to around about the Southampton game last season. That was the one I really remember where a team came to Old Trafford post-lockdown and really decided to press them high. United had been in great form up until then. And then they struggled against West Ham at Old Trafford. Um, and then they struggled in their, obviously, their three games this season. Whereas they just feel a bit more relaxed and have a lot more freedom. Now, that saying, they played away in Turkey last week. And conceded probably one of the worst <laughs> goals I've I've ever seen. I mean, it was under seven stuff. Definitely the worst goal I've actually ever seen United concede. Um, I, I I just don't understand how a group in the twelfth minute can have all eleven men in, in in the other team's half. And you know, Demba Ba broke his leg a couple of years ago in China. He's in his mid thirties, and even he was able to counterattack them on his own. You know, so it's just this bipolar relationship. Obviously, we have with United in terms of trying to figure out what they're going to do next. But there definitely is a feel that. They are more confident in themselves when they're not playing at Old Trafford. And then teams they're playing against are, are, aren't quite sure how to play against them. Because pressing at home in the Premier League isn't really something you do. You're expected to dominate possession and be on the front foot. And in order to kind of persist with a high press, usually it means you have less possession. Um, so I think teams are still trying to figure out how to play United away from home. Um so they kind of need to figure that out. But it's playing into United's hands at the moment. Um, and it was a result that was really badly needed um, because Sosha was under a lot of pressure. The potch links are growing and I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. Now they do have a nice fixture list 
uh, after the international break. But again, some of those are at home, so I, I've no idea what they're going to produce next. But uh, I think you, there still is a decent team there. Um, the balance in midfield is is getting there in terms of. I don't think you can have Fernandez and Pogba together in terms of how many risks they try and take when they're on the same team. Um, and obviously, Mata was hugely ineffectual on the right of a front three uh, against Everton. I mean, I might, I might as well be playing in the right of a front three if you're going to play Mata there. It's just not his position at all. It's just pointless. So I think there's still a work to be done there. But uh, I thought Fred had one of his best games. Maguire and Lindelof are, are starting to look a bit more solid again. Um, Shaw's improved from his drastic start to the season. Um, AWB is kind of ticking along, as you would expect, good in the good defensively struggle going forward. So... Um, there still is options available to Solskjaer when he, if he wants to change formation, particularly at home. Uh, I'd actually like to see the formation we had against PSG more at Old Trafford in terms of the 3-4-3. I think it would just give United a bit more wit um, and natural kind of shape. Uh, the 4-3-3 or the 4-4-2 diamond just narrows them down a bit too much and it makes them a bit predictable to, predictable to play against at Old Trafford. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they go post-lockdown. But um, it, it was a it was a very solid win. But I think Everton's performance really played into United's hands. Lads, it's another international window now and another chance for Stephen Kenny to get his group together and try and make some inroads towards progression and kind of continue that, continue to implement the, um, the new brand of football and... Obviously, so far, we've missed results, um, we've missed goals, but the improvements have been kind of incremental so far. Phil, um, a friendly against England on Thursday is probably not the best um, stage to, to be looking at next, considering the gulf between the two sides at the moment. Um, then it's over to a trip to Wales next Sunday, and then Bulgaria come to the Aviva on Wednesday week. Um, I suppose overall, like, what would you like to see out of the window? Uh, goals <laughs> I'd love a goal multiple goals ideally one, would one be goal. great a, a goal would be a start uh, <laughs> specifically from a forward if that was possible um, I think now with Dave McGoldrick having retired we don't have any striker in the squad with a competitive goal for Ireland um, I don't think we've many I don't think we've many goals full stop for Ireland between the strikers at the minute have we at all actually uh, but I don't think we've any competitive goals um, so I'd like to see the start of the shape that we're going to see from Ireland in the next campaign. Um, uh, the, the way Stephen Kenny explained it, it always looked likely that Dave McGoldrick was going to walk away at the end of the Euro 20 campaign. Obviously, we didn't know that. I was getting quite excited about the prospect of McGoldrick and uh, Connolly in the same team, which we hadn't managed to see so far. Uh, that's obviously not going to happen now. So I'd like to see who his number nine is going to be and ideally who his, his two either side are going to be and maybe an idea of what a first-choice midfield looks like. Um, a win would be lovely. Two wins would be even better if they could, if they could go to a Wales, maybe in disarray without gigs, um, and and welcome a Bulgaria to, to Dublin. You'd be pretty confident they're going to hopefully beat Bulgaria, don't know for sure. Um, and then we over like we've played England sporadically over the last kind of five years or so, and they've always been pretty boring draws. So I take a boring draw, then going over there and kind of getting our trousers pulled down. Um, so, yeah, ho- a goal, an idea of what his front three looks like, and four points in the Nations League. Not too much to ask for, surely. Yeah, it, it's weird. When David Goldrick, McGoldrick announced his retirement, I was actually kind of gutted, to be honest, because yeah. he probably had one of his best games for Ireland, I'd say, in... Um, 
in the playoff. I mean, his hold of play was absolutely perfect. And that's exactly what you'd be hoping for, um, for Conley or either or Dowda, whoever it's going to play off him. And it gave United or it gave Ireland, <laughs> United are still on my mind, apologies. It gave <laughs> Ireland, you know, just kind of a pattern of play that would be repeatable going into the next campaign. And now they're probably going to try and start with kind of two or three quick forwards, um, lads who aren't used to playing as number nine for their clubs or at international level. And I think it's, it's going to take a bit longer now to implement the style that Kenny will want to play going forward just because he doesn't have that focal point that McGoldrick would give you. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested to see both the formation and the lineup he goes with because um, it's the, the squad is quite, quite a mixed bag. Hmm. I mean, since the last window, um, none of Brady, Shane Long, Malumbi, Connolly, Horahan or Randolph have started a game. Um that was, uh, Callum Robinson was in the same boat um, until the Spurs game at the weekend. In addition to McGoldrick's retirement, it's not like um, these lads are shooting the lights out um, week in, week out. Um, and even in the Championship, Adam Ida has missed the last couple of games with suspension. Um, Troy Paris is only working his way back from injury. Um, and I think he's in with the other 21s, in fairness, which is a good sign, I suppose. But um, Phil, like... In terms of the striker's role, um, like we mentioned it a couple of times over the weeks that Aaron Connolly, uh, and I felt he's kind of wasted out wide. I think he's more suited to a more central position where he can get involved um, and get play going through him and get his speed in behind the line. Do you think he has, is the door open to him now to, to replace McGoldrick in, in that position? Or will it be someone like you know, keep with that kind of height um, strength that McGoldrick brought, maybe someone like, I don't know, it's, it's slim pickings really, but I suppose in terms of the younger guys, Adam Ida probably fills that, uh, fills that, those characteristics the most. Yeah, I'm like you, I'd love to see Connolly get a chance centrally. I think um, what McGoldrick will be missed nearly more so even than his physical presence is his creativity that he that he had and that he showed um, in, in kind of Lincoln the midfield with the forge unit. I think Conley could probably bring a bit of that. Um, Kenny's obviously played either in his first two games in charge. He started up front in both of those. So you'd imagine the jersey is his. Is his. Um, it's hard to know. Um, he does, as you've said, I know he missed the last couple of games with suspension, but he does have the advantage of playing as well pretty regularly for mm-hmm. Norwich. Um, so it, it, might, it might be his. I mean, it's really hard to know. You probably have more options wide if you move Connolly central you probably have more candidates to take his position wide than you would do uh, somebody to take the central role I'd imagine we'll see Ida play there I wouldn't be shocked if we do, if we see Connolly get some minutes there as well um, I, like for, for this window that's probably what you're going to see it's probably Ida maybe Connolly getting a little, little bit James Collins might get thrown in um, as a kind of a plan B but I don't think he's going to be a long term solution or option there really um, so it, it it could be Ida's to take. Uh, it could be Ida's to lose. Yeah, I, I, I think Ida is his kind of number one first choice. Really, that's kind of been clear, um, especially now that McGoldrick has gone. Um, I think Conley is kind of one of these modern day forwards who managers are just tempted to play out wide because he has pace and he can stretch defenses. But uh, I think his future is definitely at a number nine. Um, and Ida, although he was clinical for Kenny in the under-21s, his career doesn't suggest that that's somebody who's going to be clinical as a number nine. Even in the championship this season, I know he's, he's struggled a bit. He's only got one goal in seven games. Um, I know it's tough to judge a young player, but 
I think he'll play either through the middle and then Conley on the left-hand side like he has been doing. Um, but I think going forward, I think Ireland potentially have more potential uh, with Conley uh, as their striker. I think he's a better finisher as well. Uh, and longer term, I, I think Obafemi is probably a better finisher than Ida as well. Um, mm. So, But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Like Outside of the obvious front three for me, which looks like Connolly, um, Ida, uh, and probably McLean. I mean, it's very, very slim pickings there at the moment. Uh, maybe Callum O'Dowd is next in line, and then you're talking about guys who, realistically, I, I can't see them featuring too heavily for Stephen Kenny in the future. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how he manages these these next few games. But mm. at least if we get a few goals and, and, a, and a set pattern of play, which I think has been developing under Kenny, in fairness. I think he's been very unlucky with the chances they've missed. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in the playoff, um, I, th- I think he'll be okay. But I'm I'm not expecting too much from Ireland at the moment. They're still on the come down from obviously missing out on the Euros and playing Wales. Their matches have been a bit of a struggle to watch in the last few months, even before this gig's kind of suspension or whatever you call it, rest <laughs> uh, <laughs> has happened. Um, so I, I think that won't be an amazing game to watch. But um, again, it'll ju- I'd just like to see Kenny at least be consistent in trying to play the way he has before um i think that's all we we wanted from stephen kenny in his kind of first couple of years to kind of change the style that we saw under mccarthy and o'neill and really try and make his mark but it's going to take a lot of time and you know as i say again i think mcgoldrick's a huge loss for him in terms of somebody he could have built around for the next campaign And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's off a small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. Delighted to welcome Dan Kilpatrick from the London Evening Standard to get a feel for England ahead of the friendly against Ireland on Thursday evening and see how they're shaping up ahead of the rescheduled Euro 2020 tournament. Dan, hope you're well. Very well, thanks guys. Yeah, all good. Good stuff. Um, so England, they're such an interesting side. Look at it at the moment. Um, the depth seems stronger than ever. There are selection headaches all over the field, especially in, in certain positions like right back. Um, the youthfulness and talent is is the envy of most nations looking on, especially Ireland at the moment. And overall, the profile of the squad looks in a very healthy position. Um, in addition to that, like there's a very strong core of players playing at the highest level week in and week out. Dan, would that be a fair assessment of England at the moment? Yeah, I think that's definitely a fair assessment. I think there's two ways of looking at England at the moment and you've obviously put a very positive spin on it. <laughs> I guess the the other way of looking at it, where you say there's lots of competition in the squad, some people are starting to say, well, that there's just too many question positions in the squad. That there's too many spots that don't seem decided given how 
quickly the, the Euros are, are kind of coming around on the horizon. So I think the interesting thing about England is, yes, that there's, there's loads of positives. There's so much squad depth. There's new players being called into the squad literally with every camp. There's been kind of four or five debuts in the last two camps, which is pretty remarkable. But at the same time, the starting eleven is very unclear at this moment and much more unclear mm-hmm. than it was when football shut down in March. I think you know, back then when we thought the Euros would have taken place in the summer, just gone, Gareth Southgate's team was, was pretty much nailed down and there were probably only one or two question marks. Now you look at it and it's very hard to predict almost from uh, kind of front to back, barring at a few you know, obvious players like like Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling, who are definitely mm. uh, going to start. So, yes, there's loads of reasons to be optimistic. But on the other hand, I think people are starting to to look at England from over here and say, "Well, hold on a minute. You know, what's what's our best team? We've got to we've got to decide that fairly sharpish because we're running out of camps before before the tournament." Mm. That's an interesting way to look at it. I suppose it, it, it's nearly a situation where. There's too many players playing well um, and I suppose, like you said, time is running out um, coming into next summer and with so many question marks up in the air, it, it, it might leave Southgate with, a, with not enough time to, to try enough players and, and enough scenarios and, um, and setups to see what works best. Um, coming out of 2018, um, there was a good vibe of positivity despite losing in the semi-finals in the World Cup. Um, is is that still there or are expectations as high as ever or are things a little bit more pragmatic? Like you said, considering that the team is a little bit up in the air and some of the results really haven't been too outstanding so far since the since the COVID restart. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I'm really wary of coming across as really negative here, but I think in the last few camps, the doubts have started to creep in much more uh, than the kind of during the shutdown and before the shutdown. So again, just to take you back to March, I think there was a broadly very optimistic feel about um, the England side and the England camp and, and people were were looking ahead to the Euros thinking, you know, we're, we're definitely one of the favourites here. And I think just given the way England have played in this Nations League series and, and in the friendlies around it, the way Southgate set up the team and um, <clears throat> the way that this team's well, played really, um, yeah, has started to 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 make people question the manager's kind of tactical acumen and also the, the quality of some players, I think. So, you know, the, the players like Harry Maguire, who have obviously been, been badly off form this season for, for reasons mm. that um, are pretty well documented, I think. Um, so, you know, he, he's a good example of someone that back in March, you just thought, well, he's an absolute shoe in He was fantastic at the yeah. World Cup. He had a kind of breakout tournament. And now you're thinking, well, we'll hold on a minute. You know, is he, does he deserve a place in this England team? Um, so another question is Southgate's loyalty to, to the 2018 sort of gang. Um, obviously, some of them mm. like Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard, you know, Danny Rose, Ashley Young, you know, have fallen by the wayside for different reasons, but he's still kind of fiercely loyal to Maguire, Trippier, Pickford, players like that. And and they're some of the players with the, with the biggest question marks over them. So I think that there's still massive reasons to be optimistic, but I do think at the moment we could really do with some clarity around, around England, which doesn't look like mm. it's forthcoming given how 
potentially disrupt disrupted this camp is going to be with you know the the Iceland and Denmark uh, fiasco that um, is just beginning mm. to play out now. Before we get into some specific players and, and position groups, you mentioned the manager there. Um, he came off out of the World Cup with a semi-final position, which you know it's not something to be snuffed at for a lot of managers. Is the Euros seen as his last chance, or is it too early to tell at this stage, or is it result depending, or is the future in Southgate's hands for the foreseeable future going beyond twenty twenty one? I wouldn't say that he'll be there whatever happens in the Euros because there are certain expectations. There are always certain expectations around England, but those have obviously been raised by the the World Cup performance. But I think Southgate's earned a a chance to have a crack at another World Cup, definitely given the way the team performed in Russia. Um, I think he's broadly well-liked and well-respected by the media. He's very, very good with the media, which is an incredibly important part of the England job. You know, arguably the most important part of the England job, because if the you know this country's media turns on you, you know it's hard to come back from that. And I think he he understands the the, the kind of modern footballer, the modern England footballer very well. He has a good relationship with most of them, so I think he's in a pretty solid position. Obviously, there are expectations around the Euros, um, but I think there's there's an acknowledgement that particularly with the the youth of the squad. You know, this this won't be seen as a kind of last chance for this generation. You know, players like Harry Kane, Sterling, um, Sancho. You know, they're, they're still going to be well into their prime uh, by the time of the next World Cup. So that, that there certainly isn't a kind of rush for Southgate to to succeed immediately. But obviously, there there, there will be expectations next summer given the quality he's got at his disposal. Dan, if, if we look um, at the, the players who've been named and kind of the forward group in, in the most recent squad, in the squad list, we have uh, Tammy Abraham, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, uh, Grealish, who will park for a second because I know Enda wants to talk about him. Uh, we've also got Harry Kane, Rashford, mm. Sancho and Raheem Sterling. Um, missing from that list for different reasons are Danny Ings and Mason Greenwood, amongst others. Uh, a couple of things jump out. Uh, first of all, that England seem pretty well stocked in central striking options now maybe earlier in Southgate's range of perception was things were a little thin behind Harry Kane but especially with Calvert-Lewin and Ings's form over the last kind of nine to twelve months there seems to be real depth there and also what jumps out is that one at least one of Rashford, Sancho or Sterling uh, won't make a first choice 11 if the Euro 2020 final was in the morning and um, of that kind of group of mm-hmm. attacking players what combination do you think is going to be most effective and most used by Southgate over the next year or two leading into the Euros and the, the next World Cup? Well, he's always going to play Kane. He's obviously the captain and the talisman and he's the first name on the team sheet. And he, he's he been playing a pretty different type of role for Spurs over the last couple of years, not exclusively under Mourinho, but more so under Mourinho, where he kind of drops back and plays as this number 10 and He's had massive success with it. I think he's got 10 assists for Spurs already this season. And he's also had some England games where he's been by far and away their most creative player. Um, I think against Montenegro, maybe, he he got a couple of assists or maybe even a hat-trick of assists. So he's been playing that role with with kind of massive success. So he'll play in in that kind of central striking role, but dropping deep. And then for me, you, you want a couple of kind of wide, quick runners beyond him. So that really lends itself to Sancho and Sterling. 
Uh, and I think, again, to go back to March, you know, the, the only real question mark around that, that front line was whether it would be Sancho or Rashford. Uh, a lot of people were saying it's, you know, one of the strongest front lines in the world. That was certainly a debate we were having over here. You know, is it is it better than Germany's? Is it better than France's? And and there's still kind of that optimism in, in the forward play, but in the forwards rather. But Grealish has mixed things up definitely because Southgate sees him as a, I think, a forward who can play off off the left. He's obviously a different kind of player to Sancho, Sterling, and Rashford. He's not as direct, but he's probably got more guile. He's more creative, and he's still pretty quick as well, uh, as we've seen for Villa in the last few weeks. So. Uh, that really, um, you know, that really kind of mixes things up. But I think at the moment, as you said, if the final of the Euros was tomorrow, it would probably be Kane, Sancho, and Sterling, and, and Rashford would be the the unlucky one to mi- to miss out. But Grealish is, is given Southgate an interesting headache. Dan, we spoke to the Villa View podcast a few weeks ago about Jack Grealish, um, and Omar was saying at the time that. Grealish was probably the best Villa player he'd seen in the last two decades. When it comes to Grealish and England, we felt that um, England don't really have another type of midfielder like him, one who can kind of dribble, break the high press, play as number 10, but also can play that deeper role and just give England a different dimension. But yet Southgate has been quite reluctant when it comes to Grealish, both in picking him and then praising him when he plays well. Obviously, every time he's been asked about him, he bizarrely seems to refer back to Mason Mount. What are your thoughts on how Grealish can fit in going forward and if he's somebody who can change England's style of play coming into the next uh, Euros. Yeah, well, as you said, Southgate was quite down on him and I think part of the reason for that was he saw that he had, he thought that he had better options in the position he sees Grealish playing, which I think, as I said, he, he kind of sees him as, as a player who will, will maybe play off one of the flanks and I think the reason he didn't call him up a couple of camps ago, he said, was because he, he called up Mason Greenwood instead, so he clearly saw that as a a straight either or between them, which I think most people, you know, wouldn't really see. Most people would think that Grealish could play, as you said, a kind of deeper role, you know, drifting between the lines a bit more rather than a than a, than a kind of traditional winger. Uh, so yeah, I think he's he definitely has potential to change the way England play, and I think just the, the most exciting thing about him is that he, as I said, he is just a different type of forward to the the other. The other guys in contention for a starting spot, like he's, he, we've only seen him once in, in an English shirt, obviously from the start, anyway. But against Wales, and it you know it was a friendly against Wales, but he you know, he really he really did offer something different, and you know, he was he was popping up in positions that you know, we don't normally see uh, his his rivals for a starting spot popping up in, and he was playing in a different kind of way, you know, carrying the ball, um, moving it quickly. Um, and, and he's just kind of quite an aesthetically pleasing player, isn't he? When he's when he's in full flow, he's just quite good to watch. And uh, you know, there's definitely something to be said for that as well. So, yeah, I th- uh, yeah, I think he's given Southgate a headache. It'll be really interesting to see how much he plays in the last in the next sorry three matches or two matches of this camp. Um, as you said, Southgate seems to focus on his deficiencies quite often when he's asked about him. So hence the reference to Mount last time when he, he kind of, I think, mentioned that Mount was, was really good off the ball and, and good in, you know, good in the press, etc. So, um, yes, yeah, so Southgate hasn't, hasn't been his biggest supporter, but he did say on, on naming the squad that um, he felt like he was climbing the pecking order and, and it was harder to ignore. And then obviously since then he's, he's, 
played that brilliant game against Arsenal last night. So I do think you know the the sort of time of Jack Grealish is is inevitably coming. What would you see as his best position if he was to get into the England squad? Um, you know, what, I'm gonna. I don't watch Villa every week, so you know, I'm. I'm reluctant to kind of be definitive on this, but I th- I think the key for England is getting all their best players on on the pitch at, at once, and you know, part of the problem that you know I've alluded to in recent weeks is the fact that. You know, the way Southgate's lined up in some games, you know, he dropped Sterling, I think, against Denmark uh, last time out. And, you know, he was accommodating Rice and Calvin Phillips and Mason Mount and, and guys who you just don't think are as exciting as, as sorry, dropped Sancho. Don't think it was as exciting as Sancho. So I, I would like to see an England side who could play with Kane, Sancho, Sterling and Grealish in. Because I think that those are four players that, are match winners and that you want on the pitch at, at all times. You know, whether Southgate thinks that can work, whether Southgate thinks Grealish is disciplined enough in the midfield to do that, I'm not sure. But you know, that would certainly be my preference. And then you could have kind of two you know, slightly more defensive-minded midfielders behind him, which England have no shortage of. Dan, it's almost become uh, something of a meme on social media to to ask how many right backs Gareth Southgate can squeeze into an England squad, <laughs> but but it is a position they're almost uniquely well stocked in. Um, obviously Trent Alexander Arnold picked up an injury at the Etihad on Sunday, which rules him out of this international window, meaning there's one fewer right back for Southgate to give game time to. Um, but the the strength and depth they have in the position, not just within the squad, but like with players in the Premier League, like Aaron Mbisaka and, and, and Tariq Lamptey uh, excelling at the minute as well, who, who can't even get near the squad. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think Southgate knows, whatever it is, nine months out from the Euro, do you think Southgate knows who his best and first choice right-back is? No, I don't think he does. And I suppose what you could say is that the back three is coming back for England. So there's a good chance that if England start the Euros against Croatia, they'll start it with two right-backs in the 11. So I could easily see Carl Walker or Rhys James or even Trent playing as that third right-sided centre-half, which Walker has obviously done previously and did at the World Cup. That could well be the case. And then you have one of the one of the, the other ones, or Kieran Trippier or even Tarek Lamptey, you know, out as a the wing back, so that there's a good chance England start with, with two or even three right backs in the eleven. Given that Trippier has been deputising uh, on the left when Chilwell's been unfit, so th- there's probably room for more than one. But I don't think at the moment he knows who who the best one is. And he said on on naming the squad actually that that Reece James was had really impressed him since he'd come into the camp. And even though Rhys James is suspended for two of the three fixtures, he can't, he can only play against Ireland and he can't play in the nation's league games. He said, even though he was in that situation, he still wanted to call him up because he was so impressive. So he's kind of come, come out of the blue in the last couple of months you know, from an England perspective. So there's even more competition there now, but I mean, if, if, if you're asking me, I, I would play Trent because I think he's a phenomenal player, but, Southgate's very loyal to, to, to Trippier. He likes Walker and he obviously likes Rhys James. So it's it's a real toss-up at the moment. Um, then it'd be, I suppose, a miss of us from an Ireland point of view not to ask about um, Declan, uh, Declan Rice, um, given his transition over to over to England. And 
Mm. He seems to be very much in Gareth Southgate's good books. He's been implemented into the side straight away. Um, he already has 11 caps um, at just 21 years of age. Is he seen as a certain starter in one of those holding midfield positions um, in that midfield um, alongside A and other, possibly someone like Jordan Henderson? Um, is he is he the guy for England? Because like, I must admit, whenever I've seen him play for West Ham, he hasn't necessarily stood out. And his limitations in an England side where someone like for example, Calvin Phillips could come in and play a similar role, but also offer a little bit more going forward, could be a little bit better in that situation. I'm just wondering, like, what is the perception of Rice um, from an England point of view? It's an interesting one because Southgate's been very, very loyal to Rice. He's, he started most games when he's been fit and in the squad. But I think about a year ago, or certainly toward the start of last season, my perception was that Southgate probably knew that he wasn't quite starting 11 quality, but was kind of investing in him, was kind of banking on him getting better in in the next kind of couple of years ahead of the Euros. And I think to an extent that's happened, but he certainly, as you said, he's probably not the kind of dominant holding player that that, perhaps he he will be one day or perhaps England need in there. Um, So I think Southgate likes him. I think there's competition in there but like many positions it's not really clear you know, who comes out on top of Henderson or Calvin Phillips or Harry Winks or even Ward Prowse so that there there are different types of players in there and again it's it's not clear what the, the key combo is but I think Rice is is in a very strong position just by virtue of the amount of games he's played he's he's played a lot of football for England I mean the, the interesting one I suppose will be at, at the World Cup and the previous Euros, you know, Eric Dyer was the, the holding player for England. And now he's moved back to centre-half. Um, and you know, if, if the rumours are to be believed, you know, Chelsea would like to sign Rice and turn him into a centre-half and you all, you know, play him at centre-half where he can play. So, you know, it will be interesting to see kind of where he ends up in his career, you know, whether England lose another mm-hmm. kind of starting holding midfielder to, to the defence, if you like. Um, because, you know, a lot of people that, that watch him more regularly than I do, I think he will eventually move back. Dan, one position where England don't quite have the depth you'd expect is the goalkeeper position. Pickford has started the season quite poorly. Uh, I mean, it wasn't long ago where Tom Heaton was making squads, for example. Now they have Dean Henderson, um, Pope uh, and Pickford as their three keepers. Dean Henderson didn't even play in at the moment for United. Would you have any concerns there as to how that might cost them in the future? And who do you think will be their keeper in the next tournament? Yeah, I think it is concerning. Because obviously, if Pickford hadn't played at the World Cup and wasn't already England's number one, then he would be getting nowhere near the squad on current club form. You know, he's far too gaff-prone for Everton uh, to, to be a reliable call-up if he was a kind of new player or a or a young goalkeeper breaking through, you know, no, no one would no dream of championing in that. So that's a concern. Southgate is very loyal to him. And I think, you know, part of it is the fact that he is loyal to his 2018 players, but part of it is the fact that there isn't really a clear alternative. You know, Nick Pope is a good goalkeeper, but he's not great with his feet. He does make the odd mistake for, for, for Burnley side who are, who are pretty tight, but I don't think he's kind of, you're hammering on the door to be England's number one. 
And then, as you said, you know, Dean Henderson can't get a game for United, even though he's, he's really promising. So, yeah, again, it's another position and we've already covered a few of them. It's another position where we're not really sure and you know, there isn't a huge amount of time left or a huge amount of England camps left to, to kind of work that out. So I suspect Pickford will play probably both competitive games of this camp and maybe one of the others will, will get a chance against Ireland on Thursday. But yeah, it's it's definitely a concern. I, and and to, sorry, to answer your second question, if I had to bet now, I'd say it'll probably be Pickford for the Euros because Carlo Ancelotti has is, is managed him quite well. You know, he took him out of the team, but he guaranteed he'd go straight back in. He did go straight back in, so I don't think it would have dented his confidence too much. And Southgate is, is staying very loyal to him. But obviously, if the errors continue, it's going to become harder and harder to, to pick him and he'll become more, of a, more and more of a talking point. Dan, one of the most notable things about this England squad uh, in the earlier parts of Southgate's reign was how harmonious the squad was, especially during that run to the semi-finals in 2018. Um, it seems to have changed ever so slightly in the last year. You kind of had the, the the bit of a falling out between Sterling and Gomez this time last year. You obviously had the the, the, the Mason or the Mason Greenwood, pardon me, the Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden incident in a more recent camp. You had Harry Maguire uh, thrown in there in in the summer. Do you think there's a, a discipline problem creeping into this team or do you think it's just kind of young lads being young lads or does any of it even matter uh, as long as they're producing on the pitch? I think there is a minor discipline problem which is now also being reflected on the field. So obviously there was Walker being sent off in Iceland and then the two red cards, James after the final whistle and Maguire in the first half against Denmark. So that was kind of indicative of these problems that we've seen off the field as well. So I don't think we can say there's not an issue there because, you know, there demonstrably is a, a bit of a problem, even if it's quite a small one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think part of it, you know, the Foden and Greenwood made such big headlines and was such a big story. But, you know, as someone who was a massive idiot myself at 19 or 20, <laughs> I, I do think there was an element of just kind of young lads being young lads, basically. Um, and I think Southgate handled that pretty well. Um, he's brought Foden back into the squad and he's he's being quite patient with, with Greenwood, who's not really getting a game at United at the moment. So, yeah, he there have been definitely been more issues than he would have liked. Um, but I don't think he can be blamed for, for kind of some of them, which, you know... Uh, Grealish during lockdown or Carl Walker during lockdown breaking the regulations mm. or or Maguire in um, Greece. So th- these are things that happened off off the England watch. But I guess you could say that they're they're kind of representative of a of a squad who's slightly lost that focus they had previously. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think it is a bit of a problem at the moment, and it's definitely a talking point. And it's definitely something to keep an eye on, and you know, hopefully, it is just um, yeah. Boys being boys, if you like. Dan, are there any wild cards knocking about that could ever say? Um, I'm thinking about guys like James Ward-Prowse, who has been fantastic for Southampton this season. Maybe someone like Harry Barnes or Connor Cody, you know, guys who are on the mm. periphery, but could edge, edge out a role in a tournament squad or, or maybe even break into the starting eleven. Well, I guess Jamie Vardy's one to keep an eye on because Southgate has name-checked him recently. Uh, I don't think it will happen, but the prospect of Vardy... Had he retired? 
Yeah, he 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 has retired, but um, Southgate mm. said recently that he's been in um, he's been in touch with him, so he hasn't completely ruled it out. So it's it's I don't think it will happen, but it's one to keep an eye on. Um, beyond that, I think got to keep an eye on Patrick Bamford just because he's scoring lots of goals at Leeds. <laughs> you know, he's scored seven and eight or, or whatever it is, so you can't totally rule him out of contention if that kind of form continues, particularly if, you know, one of, say, Ings or, or Calvert-Lewin wasn't available. Um, I really like Ward-Prowse and I think, you know, he's doing good things with Southampton and, and he's a really big uh, dead ball threat, which is um, always a good thing to have in a squad. Um, I think there aren't many kind of obvious sort of young wild cards in, mm. in the sort of you know, Michael Owen, Theo Walcott mode that I can think of. Um, you know, left back will be an interesting one because, you know, unlike right back, there just isn't a lot of competition there. So, you know, Bukayo Saka will be looking at that. You know, Ryan Sessegnon might be looking at that position as well and thinking, you know, they could they could sneak into the squad with a strong season as the kind of backup left back. But there's no one at the moment who, who you're kind of, who, apart from you know, perhaps Greenwood, who, who you're looking at and saying, you know, they, they could really break into the squad um, you know unexpectedly Great stuff Dan we're very much looking forward to Thursday evening um, to see how a new look Ireland side shape up against an England side that um, may have more question marks than we initially thought so um, thanks very much for coming on tonight You're welcome thanks for having me guys